Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Merci pour la vie de récupérer avec Saka qui va frapper Saka Le chef-d'oeuvre Le masterpiece Bukayo Saka Joyau de la couronne, le joyau d'Arsenal, la pépite de l'Emirates Stadium répond toujours présent, année après année, saison après saison, le Big Boss, c'est lui This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> and whatever you may hear, I did not oversleep and just wake up <laughs> in a hotel in Nottingham because I work late and I'm jet lagged. I am properly prepared for this podcast, despite allegations. Well, look, isn't that what we talked about the other day? How much we prepare, all the all the legwork we put into every single episode. Mm. That's, that's I've done as much preparation as I've ever done. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Uh, so, yeah, you were out late or working late, I should say. Probably not, um, you know, in the hot spots of, of Nottingham last <laughs> night, no? No, sadly not. Sadly <laughs> not. But I was at the ground, yeah. And um, we won. We won and mm. we scored goals again. Great. So far, so good. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah. This, I think, is going to be such a, a, not a complicated, maybe an interesting discussion about this because, you know, I've, I've uh, read what people have been saying. And when you have a game like this one, when it's difficult, um, you know, it's easy to, to let anxiety about not being able to score those goals take over. And I think during the 90 minutes, people's reactions, you know, as fans tend to be very, very heightened. And I wonder, you know, how much of that heightened anxiety then plays a part in the in the post-game analysis, post-game discussion. I guess that's why we're doing this in the cold light of day. Um, so all mm-hmm. that can all that can uh, can sort of calm down a bit. So we'll get into that, but we should talk, I suppose, a little bit about the team selection. Declan Rice was in there, Gabrielle was in there, despite some pre-game uncertainty about whether or not they would be available. But they were, and there was a surprise start, I guess you would say, for Emil Smith Rowe, which was, uh, yeah, a surprise, but nice to see. Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised particularly about Rice and 
Gabriel, we know that they're very durable, those guys. And even though they've picked up little knocks or little twinges, I think they're, they're two of the most reliable players in the squad in terms of their fitness. Jinx alerts. They won't play on Sunday. Um, uh, but Smith-Rowe, that, that was a bit of a surprise to me for him to get the start. And uh, I was pleased to see it because we've been talking about it a lot. You know, is he going to get that bit of trust from the manager? And he spoke glowingly about him as he always does before the game and after the game but he actually took the action that we've been wanting to see and, and put him into the first team so that was a big moment for him I, th- I think it was yeah I think it was and, and an encouraging one for him and an encouraging one perhaps when you consider what Arteta had said pre-game about the January transfer window how it wasn't possible to do deals um, I think what he said um, really in, in those pregame comments was, was more about the market in January and more about the, the quality of player that Arsenal would have been able to source or bring in rather than uh, sort of outright unwillingness to do any deals. But the, yet. the- he, did, he did include the word yet, Andrew, for those who want to cling to a small piece <laughs> of hope. <laughs> uh, there's a lot to cling on to. Obviously, the uh, the deadline is is tomorrow uh, at 6 p.m. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a massive, massive surprise. But you know, in the absence of any deals, it, it's really important that you utilize the full extent of your squad. And you know, we talked about this, I, I'm sure, over the last few weeks. Is that when you think about players who could come in and could make a contribution, Smith Rowe was, you know pretty high on that list so it was about whether or not we were going to see him given that chance so I was I was really pleased to see him get the opportunity and I think you know despite the fact um, you know he didn't get a goal or didn't get an assist I think it was a, a tidy and, and quite lively performance from him I was impressed with some of his movement and his sharpness in the first half maybe in particular you know especially in the context of the way Nottingham Forest set up for this game. Yeah, I was too. There's a lovely smoothness to Emil Smith-Rowe that makes him a really attractive player to watch. And I thought we saw that exhibited uh, at the city ground. I I was intrigued by Arteta's comments before the game about having one of the uh, thinnest squads in the league. Um, And I don't think that was a a pot shot at the club chef or anything like that. I, I don't think that's strictly true, really. I just think he doesn't trust his full squad. Do you, I, I mean, think that's more true. Maybe, maybe. I just wonder, was he referring... Because I saw a lot of conversation about this. Like, how can you say you have a thin squad when you spend 60-odd million mm. on Havertz and 100 million on Rice? And, and, you know, we've talked about the injury to Timber and how unfortunate that was. My reading of that, and I could be wrong, of course, is that I, I think he's just talking about availability at this moment in time, that he doesn't have Thomas Partey, he doesn't have Timber, he doesn't have Tommy Asu, he doesn't have Fabio Vieira. You know, there are players who are just sort of not there, and particularly defensively, I think, there is a, a thinness, if that's what you want to call it. I don't think it was as much about numbers or investment as, as availability. I th- yeah, I think it would have to be, right? I, I just think, I think if you look across the league in terms of the amount of money that's been spent on the squad and the depth of quality that exists in the squad when the players are fit, yeah, I don't think it really makes a great deal of sense. So you're probably right. It's probably referring to, to injuries. But nonetheless, I think you've got to maximise your squad. You've got to make use yeah. of the players that are at your disposal. And I, I'm not sure he's always done that 
with the Millsmith Row. So I was pleased to see him play. Look, I, I, I don't think there's any point going sort of overboard about his performance. I didn't think it was, you know, transformational or, or sensational, but I thought he looked positive and involved and he suited the position quite well, given the very, very specific needs of the night, you know, which was to try and drag Nottingham Forest out of their shape because the pattern of the game was established very, very quickly. It really was. And I thought uh, the the comments from Nuno Espirito Santo after the game were very interesting because he was asked about, you know, what he thought of the game overall. He said, frustrated, especially the way we conceded after so much hard work that we've done, how organized and committed we were to blocking the game of Arsenal. We conceded from two moments that required uh, more attention. The first half, we didn't allow too many situations. We blocked the game. So it it, it feels very much like this game plan was designed with with Arsenal in mind, right? Or maybe this Arsenal in mind. And this is where I think it gets quite interesting. Um, because it's one thing to say, well, we're going to stay organized. It's one thing we're, uh, to say we're going we're gonna to defend deep. We're going to, you know, play with a, a low block. Maybe that's uh, the lowest block we have faced so far this season. But, but specifically talking about blocking the game of Arsenal. I mean, it seems to me there's a, there's a slight chicken and egg situation going on here because I do think there are things Arsenal can do better. We could move the ball a bit more quickly. We could... We could take a, a few shots from distance uh, rather than look for the extra pass, rather than look for the, the sort of classic Ar- Arsenal always try to walk it in goal. Maybe we could just be a bit more um, speculative at times in our football and maybe that might impact the way that the opposition play. But at the same time, it is. I think we have to acknowledge that when a team sets up the way Nottingham Forest did to block Arsenal, you know, to deny space, basically with a back six or seven at times. There were that many players, um, you know, in that defensive line. Uh, you know, Scott did a um, did one of his tweets after the game. He said, often 21 of 22 players were in the Nottingham Forest final third, which is kind of absurd, right? But as much as you might be frustrated with Arsenal's inability to be a bit more decisive... I don't think the discussion has any merit unless you acknowledge that it is very, very difficult when a team executes that game plan effectively, um, and that sort of creates the frustration that we're talking about here. Because I think Forrest did defend well, and they had so many men behind the ball. It's, it is tough. It is tough. And the first half nil-nil has been a bit of a calling card for Nuno throughout his managerial career. Um, he knows how to block a game out in those early stages. Uh, and they did that quite effectively, Forrest. It's tricky as well because we are, as fans, I think collectively analysing these Arsenal performances through a very particular prism. You know, I think the brief that we're setting at the moment is very specific. We want to see, we kind of want to be convinced by Arsenal's capacity to break down deep blocks. So we're watching it through that lens. And the longer it goes without us doing it, the the more those frustrations rise and the more the kind of hysteria potentially rises. I think, you know, we talk about the team needing to be patient at times, but probably 
we also need to be a bit accepting and a bit patient. Early goals are brilliant and they can open up games. And of course, you know, one of our great successes last season was that we succeeded in getting them a lot of the time. But when they don't come, uh, I think part of it is about holding our nerve and keeping trying to do the right things. Yeah. Um, I think Arsenal got better in that respect as the first half went on. I think they began to take a bit more uh, risk in their attack, you know, to uh, overplay slightly less. Um, But essentially it was just a case of sort of keeping knocking on the door until the moments came. Uh, And that is in some respects a game of patience. Yeah. It's not easy to watch. And I think, no, I mean, I, I find it quite boring. No, I, I agree. I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I think it is kind of boring. But, I, you know, in many ways, it's a consequence of the way that teams have set up against us and, and continue to set up against us this season. And I know that yeah. there's this, well, you know, this time last season we were playing brilliant football and, and um, you know, we want to see that kind of football again. But the reason we're facing these deep blocks so often this season is because of how well we played last season. I think that's that that feeds into this. It is difficult and it is patient. And I think I'd love to sort of pick the brains of a player or Mikel Arteta to to a greater extent than than is possible in let's say a a five minute post game press conference, right? Because mm. I think perhaps the way we think about games like this and experience games like this is markedly different from the way that they as players uh, in the team and on the pitch and he and his staff on the sidelines would experience it because you mentioned the word patience. And I think there is something to that. Like you, you have to recognize that to play the way Forrest play or played last night takes a serious amount of um, energy, both physical and mental right? Concentration. You have to stay organized. It only works if everybody is doing their job at the right time, if there's a sort of cohesiveness to the way that they play. So part of what Arsenal will do is is just keep knocking on the door. Maybe we're not knocking hard enough and maybe we're not knocking fast enough, but it is part of how they will be instructed to play in this way. And you're right. I think we did, as the first half went on, start to get a bit more joy um, in in terms of how we were able to move Nottingham Forest around. All of a sudden, if you remember towards the end of the first half, there were some switches available, switches from one side to the other. I think Ben White did it a few times. Ben White overlapped a few times. Zinchenko overlapped a few times. We began to pull them apart simply by by weight of the relentlessness of the passing. And look, like you, it is kind of boring. I agree, it's kind of boring to look at. But I don't really know beyond, um, you know, somebody producing a moment of individual brilliance or something akin to the way that we scored that that Jack Wilshire goal against Norwich, if you remember, that kind of intricate one-touch passing, that there is any other way to really approach a game like this other than to try and wear them down and ultimately as we saw in the second half that that kind of came to fruition so it's it's um i think the team will be saying okay we stayed patient we stuck to our game plan we got the goals we needed it was a bit hairy towards the end but we were able to cope and deal with that low block whereas as fans we are 
we are carrying the trauma of not being able to break teams down, of of having to wait to the 89th minute for Kai Havertz to head a goal against Brentford, that kind of thing where the panic rises in us, you know, as, as viewers, as spectators, but them as players doing their job, I think it's I think it will be viewed differently. Probably. Yeah, probably. I think they are more I think there's probably less panic <laughs> among yeah. them than there is among us, that's for sure. And you know, when we eventually get a goal, it's kind of an improvisational moment and situation and not something that would necessarily be in the pattern of play. Uh and that's sort of inevitable, you know, you're looking for uh, to find those moments where you can kind of break the pattern and, and, and find a way through. Um, I, look, I, I'm not saying Arsenal wouldn't do better uh, with some of their interplay on the edge of the box. And I'm not saying we couldn't be more creative or, or fashion more chances. In fact, I really think we, we can do that. Mm. And we should do that. But I, I accept on the other side of the coin, it is very taxing and very difficult to play against a defence where literally their wide players were playing as auxiliary fullbacks. You know, it, they had effectively two lines of defence. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And we made it at times in the first half look like hard work, but that's because it was. How much do you think Arsenal's, so is it a, whether it's a reputation or, or something else, I don't know, of struggling against a low block becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way or or certainly informs the way that teams are going to set up against Arsenal. Yeah, Arsenal find it difficult to break teams down because maybe there isn't enough variety. Maybe there isn't enough, enough pace. Um, you know, I think that's another one where it's it's a bit chicken and egg. Like, how can you play really quickly when the opposition have 11 men behind the ball pretty much at all times? The only time you can play quickly is is, you know, when the game gets a bit stretched, when you allow them to come forward, but being dominant in possession and being dominant in their half of the field means that doesn't happen often enough. But it might be a case that, you know, the the, the struggles that we have had at times this season make it relatively, I won't say easy, but when a manager like um, Nuno Espirito Santo is thinking about, well, what do I do in this game? How do I set up against Arsenal? The answer to him is obvious because we have at times struggled against this kind of uh, approach. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're going to go back, aren't you, and watch a team's previous defeats in that season and there's going to be some clear patterns there, clear things to learn from. Um, And I think it's interesting... Actually, when you get into the second half, Arsenal get the goals, but it comes after Norton Forest introduce uh, Awini. I hope that's the correct pronunciation. I don't struggle with many names in the Premier League more than that one, but mm. um, you know, who actually gave them a bit of an outlet and a bit of attacking threat. And actually, I think the game became a little bit more transitional and end to end, and mm. space actually opened up in the first half. Forest offered almost no threat. I remember a Danilo shot from the edge of the box and that being about it. I remember at one point in time, Arsenal's territorial advantage was so great that David Raya was in the centre circle in open play, right? That's how <laughs> high up the pitch Arsenal were and how much Forest were penned in. Um, but in a weird way, it sort of suited them because they could just sit in, be organised, make Arsenal's life difficult, when they started to play with a bit, a bit of ambition, then obviously they were forced to by Arsenal getting the opening goal. It, it kind of proved their undoing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the first half, uh, as we said, uh, Arsenal ended it 
better than they started it if you're looking for um if you're looking for sort of encouragement about where a goal might come from um the dominance was obvious i think at one point they they put up a could have even been like midway through the first half and they put up a a graphic on on the TV that Arsenal had, had something like 125 touches or passes rather in the Nottingham Forest final third and they'd had one in the Arsenal final third so that right. that tells you what the what way the game was going there were a couple of moments i think um Smith Rowe got into the box and played across for Jesus which was which was deflected not far over the bar. And then towards the end of the half, there was a Bakayo Saka shot, which deflected off a defender and just wide with Matt Turner going the other way. I don't think he he would have got there had it crept inside the post. But, but that was kind of it. But there were moments as well where I think you could say if Arsenal had maybe tried a bit of a pot shot from inside the area, if we tried the first time cross, if you know players might have been a bit more inclined to use their weaker foot, there might have been a little more opportunity in that first period. Definitely. And I think it was about 35 minutes into the game, there was quite a long break for an injury. Forest player went down and there was a lot of coaching going on in that time. You know, the whole team came across to the subs bench. Um, Albert Stubenberg had a long conversation with Zinchenko about his positioning, about his use of the ball. Arteta was speaking to the team with, you know, typical intensity. Um, so, uh, you know, Yova was talking to Smith Rowe. There was a lot happening in that period. And I, and I do think Arsenal picked up a bit after that. You know, that Saka chance that you mentioned, which went just wide of the post. It came from a moment where Zinchenko, instead of sort of standing on the ball and looking for the perfect pass, just kind of knocked it into the box, mm. uh, into a bit more of an area. And I think, you know, there's, there was sort of lessons to be learned from that. You know, Arsenal, they were a little bit almost too precise, I think, in what they were doing for most of that first half hour. Sometimes you've just got to play the percentages, you know. You've got to take the chance. And um, when Arsenal did that, they found more going for them. I mean, think how many goals in the Premier League come from a ricochet in the penalty box, a bit of a deflection that yeah. falls to a player in the right place at the right time. Well, look at the Forest goal. You know, that's, <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. It, that's exactly a, a case in point. And I think you've got to take a bit more of a gamble sometimes. And and, it, and even, to be honest, the goal we eventually scored in the second half, I, I sort of think exemplified that. So yeah, let's let's look at those goals, um, or let's look at the second half in a bit more detail. The game immediately settled down into the to the same kind of pattern. We did have corners. We've talked a lot about Arsenal set pieces and how effective we've been. I didn't think the set piece delivery last night was anywhere near as good as it has been in in previous games. Um, Matt Turner caught about three or four Bakayo Saka corners, which you know I don't think he should be doing. I think Saka can deliver deliver better than that. Um, but we had a, a very big chance, fifty seventh minute, when one of those slightly more intricate moves that uh, I mentioned in the first half actually came off, and Gabriel Jesus was through on goal with with just Matt Turner to beat. Given the way that he actually scored the goal. I don't know that we can um, use the angle of the shot as an excuse for him not putting the ball in the back of the net there. I really think he should have scored in that position. Yeah, I'm just watching it back now. I mean, it was a really nice move, wasn't it? Uh, ben White into Saka. 
back heel to Odegaard. Lovely from Odegaard to find Jesus. And yeah, Jesus, I don't know. Do you think he goes for the wrong post? Maybe I'm not sure. I, I wonder if it might have been on for him to just go for the far corner rather than trying to tuck it in the near, near post. But, um, I think you want to see him score there. Mm. It's obviously a matter of inches, but you know, that those can be pretty crucial inches in this division. So yeah, you, you'd like to see him score. Obviously, uh, he made it out before too long. You sometimes wonder about Gabriel Jesus. Like, is, is this going to be one of those nights for him where he's really effective in everything he does apart from that final action, um, the job of centre-forward of putting the ball in the back of the net? And then there was, just after that, I think he had um, he had a lovely turn in the box. It reminded me a little bit of that... Do you remember the the goal Canu scored against Spurs, where he lifted it over the defender's head and then just whacked it in? It was not too dissimilar from that, where the touch and turn to get away from the defenders was excellent. The finish, wayward, well over the bar. Yeah, that was a brilliant turn. You know, just lifted it over the guy's head. But yeah, I, I like you, were starting to fear, oh dear, it's another one of those Gabriel Jesus performances kind of everything but the goal. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I did fear it was going the same way, but fortunately, I was wrong. You were wrong, and uh, I think I was wrong, and maybe uh, a lot of people watching <laughs> had their yeah. had their um, preconceived ideas about what was going to happen uh, turned upside down. The throw and the long throw in behind has yeah. been something Arsenal have been doing a lot more of late. I think mm-hmm. it's definitely a tactic in this instance. Uh, let's go back to what I was talking about with Nottingham Forest and, and how much you have to be switched on the, the, the concentration levels you need uh, at this level of the game to execute that game plan perfectly are, are so high. And in this case, maybe they weren't expecting the long throw, but they weren't said it. it we, we took advantage of a moment where their organization was found wanting and Jesus made the most of it. Where do you stand on this being a good finish versus maybe a touch fortunate versus being perhaps a bit of a goalkeeping error? I mean, credit to Jesus. He took it on. He, he, he went for it. It went in from a very tight angle. I think he deserves credit for, obviously, credit for the goal. Um, but there are, other, there are other aspects to look at as well. Definitely. I mean, the long throw is has been something we've been using. It's it's that throw in behind the defence, and and I I wonder if we should give Arsenal some more credit here. I mean, Forest's defence get pulled out of position. Martinelli goes over to the left wing, and somebody follows him out there and leaves Jesus free. But that all could be by design. There's so much detail in how Arsenal approach these set piece scenarios now. Um, and I think what's what be interesting to know is for a long time, I think throw ins were considered kind of the remit of the open play coaches. Um, but I I would wager that they now are being treated as set pieces and with the level of detail we've seen applied to things like corners and free kicks. Yeah. It looks that way to me. Yeah, we had a um, question actually on the Discord from uh, our old friend, Earthman Gunman, who says, is a throw-in a set piece? And great question. I, I think yeah. there's, you know, we, we saw... Remember when Liverpool hired a throwing coach 
And everyone was yeah. like, what are they doing? Throwing coach. Any old cunt can throw a ball in. You know, but there is more to it these days. And uh, I know that Arsenal's throw-ins have, have come under some scrutiny. Um, but it feels like a very deliberate tactic that's been introduced over the last little while. This long throw in behind. I don't think we've got anyone who's, you know, they're not Rory delapping it uh, over the defense or anything. But it's a way of trying to unsettle and, and um, pull a defense that's probably been well-organized, pull them apart a bit. Yeah, and it's it's uh, the one time in football where kind of the offside trap is of no consequence. So you're able to sort of position and get an attacker in behind with far greater ease than you can in open play. Uh, so it makes sense to exploit those moments. And when it comes to the finish... I think there is a bit of luck involved. When I first saw it in real time, I was like, how the hell has he done that? How yeah. has he squeezed that in? And you see it back and obviously, you know, it comes off the goalkeeper on its way into the net. Um, uh, you know, and I think it got down as a goalkeeping error, really. But you've got to buy a ticket, you know? We're saying in the first half, they're not taking on enough shots. They're not having a pop often mm-hmm. enough. That's exactly why you do. Because sometimes... It does, you know, hit the keeper and end up in the back of the net. Um, and I think I, I, I was sort of just pleased to see us take on a, a shot that was not necessarily our preferred angle, you know, not waiting for the perfect moment to strike, but taking on the chance that's there and, and hoping the bounce goes our way. I think that's all right sometimes. And that's what was needed on this occasion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when he picked it up, I, I think he only had one thing in his mind, to be fair. I'm yeah. not sure what else there was for him either, you know, whether there was a, whether there was a cutback or something like that. Like, No, you know, not really, I don't think. I'm just having a look at it again here. I mean, no. Like, there would have taken a, an amazing precision pass to play to Bakayo Saka, who was the closest man to him, but still about 10 yards away. Um you know, behind the the penalty uh, spot. So the only option he had in that situation was was to have a go and hope for the best. And look, you know, like you say, if you don't buy a ticket, you don't win the raffle. So um, mm-hmm. it was good, obviously, to, to, to get that goal, good to make the most of a situation where we pulled Forrest apart. And then you're thinking, okay, well, can we build on this? Are they going to come out a bit more? You know, is there going to be a bit more uh, endeavor or ambition from Forrest? But you know, the second goal comes from what was a um, it was a Forest mistake. I think they'd had a corner, maybe a couple of uh, a couple of seconds mm-hmm. previously, which we'd you know we got the ball away, and then I think it was Montiel who who played a very poor pass into midfield. Martin Odegaard to Gabriel Jesus, Jesus uh, with the pass to Bakayo Saka, Saka with the right footed shot into the bottom corner. You know. I, I, there's another there's another sort of conversation, isn't there? Because there's so much talk about a, a striker uh, and how Arsenal might need a striker. And, you know, I don't think anybody would turn that down. I don't think anybody would say that we um, we couldn't do with a bit more variety in, in our front line uh, at times. But let's also give credit to Gabriel Jesus, uh, who Mikel Arteta said after the game had taken a big kick in the previous game, has fluid on the knee, but worked really hard to be involved in this game. And ultimately, he's the guy 
who ended up with the contributions that 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 helped us win this game. A goal to open the scoring, an assist for Saka. That's a big performance. If we'd signed a 70 million, 80 million, whatever striker and brought him in, he'd done that in this game, people would be saying, there you go, there's some money well spent. No, that's fair. And, and speaking of variety, you know, Kai Havertz was on by this point and he did play a part in this goal as well, won an aerial challenge in his own half that sort of put Forrest on the back foot and led to that that Montiel uh, miscue. And yeah, look, it was actually great to see how effectively, how efficiently Arsenal pounced on the opportunity they'd been given. Actually quite reminiscent in some ways of, of Martinelli's goals against Palace, you know, counter-attacking opportunities against opponent who are having to slightly chase the game and just being really decisive and ruthless. And they got every pass spot on Odegaard to Jesus into Saka and I love that finish as well right Mm. foot from Saka back across the goalie back among the goals and to score that second goal within I think it was within five minutes of the opener you know there there were big celebrations on the bench because it really just sort of put Arsenal in a, a commanding position a position where ultimately you know they were able to have a late scare and still survive, which I think away from home in the Premier League, you're going to get sometimes. But that second goal, following on the heels of the first, I just think really settled everyone down for like, you know, the majority of what remained of the game. Well, you know, as it turned out, it was a really, really important goal because, yeah. you know, Forrest did get one back. Um, you know, I was doing the live blog and I was sort of tempted to say, well, I think Arsenal are just going to control this game with the the classic 300,000 passes. And just after uh, I was thinking of saying that, <laughs> Forrest, Forrest scored a goal. Um, this is a an interesting one to analyse. Because the long diagonal over the left back, mm-hmm. uh, as I called it today in, in the blog, it's uh, Zinchenko's kryptonite is what mm. I think I would call that. Because, you know, when he's actually facing play and there are aerial balls to be won I think he's pretty good Zinchenko the numbers uh, don't lie on that you know I I think he wins a fair share of challenges got a good spring yeah he really does but this ball over the top uh, uh, you know the diagonal ball over uh, his head is one that's caused us some problems this season It, it has been a weakness I think as well there is a an element of chance to this goal the way it breaks for Awanyi. Saliba for once isn't as strong and effective in the challenge as he usually is. He usually wins those um, but uh, you know the striker is is big and strong and and bumps him out of the way. It falls very kindly for him. I think from there he's always going to score. Don't think you can ask much of of the goalkeeper. Um, So there's a touch of bad luck, but also when you look at it as well, when they're looking, um, you know, across the line as they're checking for the offside, there are three players in a perfect line, Ben White, Saliba and Gabriel and Zinchenko, perhaps mindful of the fact that this long ball over the top is is something that, that has been a bit of a problem for him, has dropped off a little bit. So where do you stand on this one, you know, where Zinchenko... Uh, not not holding his line. Should he have done a bit more for the header? Were we a bit unfortunate? Should Saliba have done better in the middle? It, it's it's one of those where I think this is a sort of a, a, a touch of randomness to it, but a touch of, of Arsenal culpability as well. 
Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think it goes way back. When you look at where that um, long diagonal ball is is sprayed out to the wing from, I think Mikel Arteta might look at that and say, that player's given too much time, you know, on, on the ball to look up, pick that pass and, and play it in behind. I think you've often got to look at the source, right? And I think maybe Eddie Nketiah could have been more on his toes and, and closed that space down. From there... Yeah, I guess, you know, you want Zinchenko to be holding the line. It's almost like there's a bit of an insecurity in him about that vulnerability. And so he's going back towards his own goal. Maybe that's what he and Ben White were having words about after. Uh, We'll probably never know. But I think we also have to call it as it is and say Saliba, I think, makes an error there. You know, we don't say it often. But there was one in the first half where he gave the ball away and had to make a good recovery challenge and, and did. And this one here, I think he just gets caught under it. Um, I have to say, I, I obviously didn't have the benefit of the replay watching it live. And I think I thought it was Ben White. I'm so not used to seeing William Saliba, you know, caught out in that way. I almost couldn't believe it was him. But yeah, yeah looking at it now, that's a, a defence error and they pounce on it. He always seems to get his goal against us uh, when he doesn't he? Yeah, I mean there, there were shades of of the, the game at the Emirates earlier in the season where they scored yeah. and, and he scored a late goal and then what was or felt like a fairly comfortable uh, lead was, was all of a sudden a bit hairy and um, you know, that was the case again last night where you know, a, a moment can cost you, um, you know, two points if something else happens uh, after that. As it stands, I think we we dealt pretty well with the final few minutes. I I enjoyed Trossard, um, the way that, that he, great. you know, the way that he held on to the ball um, and sort of killed play or stopped Forrest getting any any kind of momentum. Um, we dealt with some high balls that came into the box and headed them away fairly well. But of course, you know, when it's 2-1 instead of 2-0, you're, you're always a little bit worried. You know, on, on balance, though, I don't think that Arsenal deserved anything other than three points from this. And I think it would have been a bit of a travesty if, if Forrest had got anything from this game. But, you know, that's football. That's the way it works. You mentioned the the discussion between Zinchenko and uh, Ben White at the end of the game. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that? Mikel Arteta w- was keen to sort of accentuate it as a, as a positive thing. Um, you're saying I love it this is the way players are holding each other accountable we didn't defend well enough Um, you know all of that Uh, but yeah a bit of spin there I thought yeah a little bit a little bit I mean was it was it was it something that Ben White took issue with Zinchenko rather than William Saliba in that situation yeah yeah I mean (laughs) I guess, yeah, you don't see too many people pointing fingers at William Saliba too often. I would say, though, Um, uh, sorry, just I'll let you finish now in a second. I would say, you know, with the best will in the world, that that Zinchenko is probably more annoying than William Saliba. And maybe it's sort of a a very unusual thing for Saliba to get caught out that way. Whereas if Zinchenko has dropped off the offside line that the others have worked hard to keep, then I can understand why that would be maybe a bit more frustrating for, for Ben White. Totally, yeah. The structural stuff is the stuff, you know, that you expect everyone to adhere to. Um, I mean, I thought Arteta, you know, there's a few images of him on the pitch at the time looking slightly less thrilled about uh, the kind of public falling out. 
Um, and then he went into his press conference and said, oh, I love it. I think it's brilliant. And I think that's quite a nice line, to be honest. And when you've got three points and you don't want anything to detract from that and destabilise the group, I think that's absolutely the right thing to say. I'm sure that behind closed doors, his attitude would be more, that's a conversation for the dressing room, not out on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and, and I think he's right about that. But, but do you have any issue in general with players... Um, showing that kind of, I mean, there's a line, isn't there, between okay, keep this indoors, have that discussion in the in the changing room, versus the right. I'm very frustrated at this moment in time. Some people will say, you know, it's a bit of passion, it's heat of the moment. I think it happens at every level of football. You know, players on the same team uh, disagree and and have moments. And ideally, I think you would like to see it happen behind closed doors. That's a discussion you could have calmly and and everything else. But, you know, it it happens with such frequency at pretty much every level of the game that that these things happen and they're forgotten about and swept under the carpet pretty quickly. Like, I don't think it's a, a big drama in any way. No, I don't either. I don't either. And... You know, we know that Zinchenko can be quite emotional. We know that Ben White can be quite spiky. Uh, I don't think we need to read a great deal into it. Um, and I, yeah, I think Arteta actually played it really well because he turned something that could have been really perceived as negative and made a few headlines into a positive. And I think that's, I think that's good management and good sort of use of a press conference. Mm. So overall, a good win at a ground where we've had some difficulties in the past. Do oh, you yeah. do you think that, you know, for all our, going back to what we were talking about at the start, for all our anxiety as fans about the difficulties of breaking down a low block, the positive from an Arsenal perspective for the players, for the team, for the manager, will be that they did manage to do that, that they stayed patient, stuck to their game plan, found the goals, potentially could have scored maybe one more, um, you know, along the way, which would have made it a lot more comfortable that, you know, they, after a, a period where results weren't good, have got to start building a bit of momentum in terms of, uh, of results and wins because, you know, the margin for error is not there because of you know what happened over the Christmas period. So they're looking at it going, OK, that was tough. It was difficult. Um, we can do better, but we've taken three points job done let's close the lid on this one and and move on to the next one which is going to be very very difficult you know probably in different ways yeah absolutely i i think you know a few weeks ago we were lamenting our inability to break down defenses but we weren't putting the ball in the net you know we are at least scoring goals and winning games here and i think it was a really important one actually in the context of the week you know when you think about the game we've got on sunday against liverpool um you know, going into that off the back of three points was really important, generating some momentum. Because that is, you know, I think given the timing of it, start of February, I think it's really got the feel of something that could be season-defining. Mm. You know, win, and I think we're very much in it, and we can talk about a title race with some credibility and conviction. Mm. And I think lose, and it will look difficult, and it will affect I think the complexion of of the remainder of the campaign so I I think it was so important to set that up right and I think we've set it up 
beautifully and it's a a huge huge game now yeah it really is more on that game a bit later in the week we will uh we'll preview it over on patreon of course all right let's take a little break here we'll uh we'll uh, grab a cuppa maybe and come back with your questions and more in part two right after this Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Before we get into those, just a quick note to say thank you so much to everybody for the lovely comments and feedback on the 10-year anniversary episode. We're, uh, we're very happy you all enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to put together, so... Thanks so much for that. The other thing I will say is that um, we are experiencing a few little uh, recording audio issues today. I don't know if it's the the Wi-Fi in James's hotel or or just the internet in general, the universe. Uh, so we're probably going to keep this question uh, part a little bit shorter than usual because there's going to be a lot of post production to do on it, and I'd like to get this podcast out for you at some point today. With that said, I will let you go first, James. Okay. Uh, we start with this question from a Jala, who, who's at Bossman Birdie on Twitter. And they say, 
Why does James use the term up top, presumably meaning in attack? Not only was it brought in years ago by Andy Gray, which is more than enough reason to stop, it's just wrong. <laughs> a football pitch has a front and back. So unless you start calling defenders centre bottoms, please cut it out. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to cut it out. And to appease you, Ajala, I will from now forth refer to defenders exclusively as centre bottoms. I will say Gabriel and Saliba are the best bottom partnership in the Premier League. <laughs> I mean, does it have a front and a back? Does it not have sides as well? No, Andrew, it has a front and a back. That's it. That's it. No top, no sides, no underneath, <laughs> just a front and a back. Okay. And I'd like to apologise to everyone. Ten years I've been saying the phrase up top. Um, here's to the next ten of me saying it. I did not know that that was something brought in by Andy Gray. I, I'm pretty sure that's been uh, part of football yeah. parlance for a long time. It's because I'm a proper football lad. That's why I use phrases like up top, because I'm a pseudo-analyst who pretends to know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, no, I don't think... I don't think I'd, I think I would struggle to eradicate it from my football vocabulary. I mean, as, as Adam Hurry has... Uh, really beautifully illustrated. Football is a world of full of cliches, and you know that kind of terminology is just part of the yeah. part of the picture. There's a lot of nonsense jargon, you know. Um, yeah, it is. Some, some of which doesn't make sense. Will I have? Here's a couple of questions. A couple like this. Um, Dan Meyer. Uh, on yeah. Twitter, who's at Dan Meyer, he said, have you noticed Saka's moved centrally for periods in our last two games? Is this something we should be doing more often to be a bit more unpredictable? And another Dan, Dan Constable, who's at Constable Dan. Hello, hello, hello. He said, in the, sec <laughs> in the second half, we saw players, especially Saka, floating into different positions, moving out to the left and centrally. Uh, do you think this was the players themselves or a tactical tweak from uh, Mikel Arteta? We know how structured the team is. And I have to say, I noticed in the first half in particular, Gabriel Jesus spending quite a lot of time on the left with Martinelli central. Yeah. In fact, in the first five minutes of the game, I was trying to work out if something different was going on in terms of the formation because Jesus was so wedded to that left-hand side that I was thinking, where's he playing? Is he left eight? What's happening here? Like Honestly, in those first few minutes, I was trying to put my finger on it. And it, obviously, it then rotated out and it, it turned out to be that it's just sort of something he was kind of making a habit of rather than his default position on the pitch. The Saka central thing, I did notice it last night, but to be fair, I've noticed it a fair bit over the last couple of months that he's been popping up in more central areas. Almost Mo Salah-ish positions, you know, ostensibly starting from the right, but moving into central areas a lot more, picking it up, you know, within the width of the goalposts. Um, I, I think it has to be instruction. I think it's about adding variety and unpredictability to our game to help us cope with these deep blocks we're facing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, players will have been, 
the Forest players, I guess, will have been told, this is your man or, you, you know, you've got to look after Jesus where he's there. You've got to look after Martinelli on the left. You've got to look after Saka on the right. But uh, again, it comes down to maybe how well organized Forest were and how well drilled they were, that even with those variations in movement in the first half, they stayed organized and, and stuck to their positions. And there was obviously good communication across the uh, the Forest back line. All 10 of their defenders on the night uh, communicated very well. So um, it is just, again, a question of, of staying patient. Let me ask you this, though, as well, because it's sort of tied into this this idea of playing against low blocks. Uh, Chunky Watts, it says, we look frightening on the break. We have done more than a few times this season. Do you think this is a trait of the team we could utilize more, i.e. allow ourselves to concede a bit less control or a bit of control at times and create counter-attacking opportunities? This, the, the, the control and dominance thing is, is very good if you don't want to concede goals because the opposition can't have the ball. But if you are really good at, at, at uh, moments of transition or moments on the counterattack, you know, is part of the game plan perhaps not just sort of kick it to them and let them have it because that's not how football works, but, but maybe trying to find a bit more of a balance there? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question I think because it it kind of goes against the grain of what Arteta has tried to do with the team this season I, I personally am convinced that his kind of manifesto for the season has been about reducing risk you know about essentially kind of uh, suffocating out any opportunity for the opponents to score now as it happens they are scoring, <laughs> usually from their only chance in the game. So it's it's not a foolproof plan. But I, I think that he, I think, yes, sort of like eradicating our defensive vulnerabilities has kind of been, certainly for the first third of the season, his priority. That's my best guess. Whether he would sort of shift from that to become a bit more of a kind of end-to-end transitional team, I don't know. But I, I think that's what we were for quite long, for, for certain periods last season. Um, and it, it made for some quite chaotic games mm. that were exhilarating, uh, but also shortened all of our lifespans by several years. <laughs> so, so it's a really tricky one. Because in some ways, I, would, I have to be like really clear, I would probably rather watch that. <laughs> like, I don't find our style of play it's not particularly to my tastes at this point in time i do find it quite sort of um stayed yeah a little bit and i know the opponents play their part in that as well as we discussed in part one but you know i I don't mind a bit of chaos it's kind of what i what i love Uh, but of course with that comes the risk that it it goes against you yeah those margins don't fall in your favour. So it's really difficult. I, I think actually the way we're playing now is the way that, you know, the very, 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 very best teams kind of do play a lot of the time. And I, yeah, I, I think that this problem that we have of sort of breaking teams down, it's, it's going to be an ongoing thing. I don't see us deliberately reverting to a more open style of play. Do you? No, 
No. Because obviously all the work that they've been doing on the training ground and, you know, the, the way they've strategized and perhaps even the way that they've tried to build a team and, and recruit yeah, players. recruited, I think so. You know, is, is about this, is about control. But what, what I think most people would acknowledge, you know, frustration levels in terms of how we play or how difficult it is to break these teams down will, will vary. But I think there would probably be some consensus among Arsenal fans, that we can do better and we can improve in the final third. Mm. Whether that's entirely with the players that we have or via further recruitment, again, that's a that's a different discussion. But if you can improve by 5%, maybe that's all it takes. You know, maybe that's all it yeah. is to become much more incisive, uh, to to create more chances, to make it more difficult for the opposition to to stay as organised as they do. And whether that is, yeah, you know, I think what's what's fascinating about it is that there is clearly a a strategy on the collective and the collective uh, structure of the team and. Uh, control and all that kind of stuff and what it it feels like we might need to to go a step further or take a step forward is just a bit more individualism mm. does that make sense that that you that somebody with the ability to do something out of nothing which you know is 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 something i think any manager w would love but the ability to do that within the, the the structures that we have already without, yeah, it, it feels like a bit of a fucking Goldilocks porridge situation, doesn't it? It's got to be just right, just right. That player for Mikel Arteta, this is what I'm saying, he's probably got to find, you know, his Goldilocks attacker um, to give us that. So I, I'm I'm with you and I think... Most people would say the football this season has not been as exciting as as it was last season. It's not as captivating. But we're, you know, we're second in the league. We're in the Champions League again. We're, <laughs> we're by any measure, uh, and particularly in comparison to some other big clubs in, in the Premier League, we're in very good shape. So, you know, the the I suppose Mikel Arteta would say this is working. Maybe you know it, it can get better, of course, but it's working. Look at look at the table. Yeah, I think fundamentally he believes it's more sustainable. Mm. I think, and uh, probably less scintillating, but I think that that is what he believes. And, and one thing I would add is that you know maybe it, it is as simple as early goals change things. You know, if you score, if you take the lead early, it forces the other team to slightly adapt their game plan and suddenly opportunities open up and space is created. I, I do think it, it can be that simple at times. What is the timing of the first goal? I think that can be absolutely decisive. So I don't see us dramatically changing or, or diverting in style from here. You know, I think mm. this is the plan moving forward. I, I mentioned about conceding goals and I thought this was an interesting question from Matt Hammond, who's at Matty the Goon. Matt says, Morning, gents. Last night, another one-shot-on-target goal from Nottingham Forest. I think they had another shot on target, to be fair, but I take the point. Do you think Arsenal's complete ball dominance in games 
sometimes removes the ability for real in-game defending. And then he adds, I think Forrest had one final third pass in the first half. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I find that interesting, the idea that the fact that we do so little defending in games, does that mean that when we're forced to, it, we almost find it more difficult? Yeah. I wish I knew the answer to this because it's not just a problem, uh, you know, that Mikel Arteta has experienced or that we've experienced this season. I just wonder, is it a consequence of... Like, if you have most of the ball and most of the the territory and most of the chances, if you're a team that plays like that week after week after week after week, is it not normal for you to be a team that concedes from your first chance, second chance, because the other team just doesn't get that many chances? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but where are all the missed chances at? I don't know. I mean, there are some of those as well. There clearly are, you know, moments yeah. where the opposition don't take their chances. Um, I just think it might be a consequence of, of the way we play. But, you know, when you lay it out like that, okay, Arsenal have X amount of shots and the opposition scored on their first shot. I don't know. I'm sure uh, Orbino has a doom stat about this somewhere, about how, you know, Arsenal, the team that concedes the most first shots on goal. But I, I don't I don't have the answer above and beyond the fact that you are dominant means the opposition gets so few chances. Maybe it's to do with the quality of chance they get. Maybe it is to do with the concentration levels or, 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 or um, how much defending we, we actually have to do. But I, I, you know, if I knew the answer to this, I'd, um, you know, I'd sell it, bottle it, and sell it to Arsenal. I don't, I don't have any other theory on it though. Besides that, it is fascinating though. I, I, it is really interesting. I mean, I do wonder: is it just a question of kind of psychological emphasis? You know, mm. as good as Gabriel and Saliba are, they spend ninety percent of the game, you know, thinking about can I be in the opponent's half finding a pass between the lines? 90% is maybe an exaggeration, but in a game like Forest, it's probably not. Yeah. You know, can I find the right pass? Can I, you know, spot someone in space? And they're, they're very much focused on that side of the game. So maybe switching to defensive mode is difficult. It's interesting because, you know, we've seen less capable defenders for Arsenal. I'm thinking about, for example... You know, when we won the FA Cup in, in 2020, dig in and, you know, turn in a really good defensive performance where they've sort of been backs to the wall, you know, last man throwing themselves in front of the ball. Mm. We regularly see worse teams than Arsenal produce effective, organised defensive performances quite like that. And is that just a question of mentality and emphasis and today we're going out to do this i don't know but mm. clearly something is going on and and because david raya his shot stopping numbers last year were really really good for brentford right and he's come into this arsenal team i think they were pretty much the best in the league you know he made a huge amount of saves really good save percentage he's come into this arsenal team and his numbers are much lower. He's conceding a much higher proportion of the shots on target that he's facing. And they're numbers that bring him 
into line with Aaron Ramsdale, who's in the same position last season. So there's something about... I, I personally don't believe that, you know, he's just half as good a goalkeeper as he was last season. Yeah. I think there's something about the type of chances that we give up that means more are taken. Yeah, if you're a goalkeeper uh, facing a load of shots, your 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 shot stopping is probably going to be uh, is going to be higher. We've seen plenty of goalkeepers like that who are great shot stoppers because they're they're just bombarded every single game. Uh, and even if you do let a few in, the amount that you're saving means that your stats um, your stats are higher. You know, there are there are. I think we ask a lot of our two central defenders as well when you look at where they play and and how many. How many touches on the ball they have? Um, I think Saliba and Gabriel both had over a hundred um, mm. touches on the ball last night. Again, it's a consequence of of, of how we play. But uh, I can't find the stats right now. I have them here now. Hang on one second. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Player stats touches one hundred and seven for Gabriel. One hundred and two for. William Saliba, 123 for, for Zinchenko. Um, wow, many yeah, of those were in the opposition half, of course, and, and Saliba and Gabriel are, you know, they're standing close to the halfway line waiting for passes and looking to make passes rather than being, you know, what, what what's a good example of this? Here's a good example of this. When Leicester won the league, they had... Uh, Wes Morgan and Robert Huth as their central defensive mm. partnership, who basically just stood on the edge of their box and headed things away over and over and over and over again. And probably the two of them hit a very rich vein of form in that season. But could Wes Morgan and Robert Huth do what Gabrielle and William Saliba do? No. So it's about no. it's about how those defenders gel with your your overall style of play as well. I think. True, true, but yeah, it it is it is a head scratcher, definitely. Mm. And I, if someone could, if someone could, you know, define define it and pinpoint exactly why it is that you know half the shots we face seem to end up in the back of the net. Yeah, they they get a very well paid job as Mikel Arteta's new assistant. That's for sure. Yeah, um, Master John Bree says Albert Sambi Lukonga has had two assists in his last four starts uh, for Luton. His loan hasn't gone according to plan because of injuries, but he's doing all right when he plays. Is there any hope that he can have a career at Arsenal, or can we recover a good chunk of his transfer fee in the summer? Yeah, I think he's doing well at the moment at Luton. From what I hear, they had a fantastic result last night. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. Was it four nil, something like that? Yeah, four nil. Uh, yeah, incredible. I mean, you know, I, I think yeah, he's really finally fit and playing regularly for Luton, which is a positive. Do I have much hope of him having a career at Arsenal? Honestly, not particularly. I, I don't think so, but. Yeah, could be an opportunity for us to make some money in the market. I mean, I'm just going to have a look at the Premier League table now. Luton are still, you know, what are they, a point outside the relegation zone. I, you know, I think they'd still be among the favourites to go down. And if they do, are they going to be positioned to buy Sambi from us for big money? 
Probably not. But could his performances attract another Premier League club? Have to hope so, because that's the only league with any money. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, I think Luton will be looking at what happens with Forrest and Everton again, of course, because, yeah. um, you know, that could be that could be a real, not lifeline, but could be a real boost for their survival hopes. Either way, I think considering the way they started the season and where they are now, I think Rob Edwards and, and Luton deserve quite a lot of credit, you know, because they, they sure. looked completely out of their depth at the start of the season. And as it's gone on, they have... You know, they've looked pretty good. They've had some good results. We know how difficult it was for us to go there and, and get a result um, and get the three points. You know, very, very late Declan Rice goal was was the difference on the night. Um, there was there was the chaos football that you mentioned a bit <laughs> earlier. Like, what do people prefer? What do people prefer that? Because the late goal gives you that, that, in, that rush um, of, of jubilation and celebration at the end. Or, you know, how do people feel about the chaos football if we didn't get that goal and it ends 3-3? You know, yeah. these are the these are the fine margins, you know? Serenity or chaos, yeah. What, what do you prefer? Serenity um, now! Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good point on Luton. I think they're doing well. I think he's a good coach, good manager, and seems like seems like a good guy as well. So I, I, I wish them all the best. And I'm pleased to see Sammy playing. That's the main thing. You know, he missed a lot of football and... Um, it's been a bit of a tricky time for his development. So mm. glad to see him back and, and feeling a bit more confident. Yeah, I think you're right, um, though. I think it is going to be, you know, a, a good loan spell at Luton. The best case scenario for all concerned is that it raises his profile, raises his price tag, and somebody's willing uh, to pay Arsenal the money for him in the summer. I think so. I think so. What about this one? Big red Arsenal. <laughs> they say, why do you think Emile Smith-Rowe is no longer considered an option out wide? He looked sharp going forward last night, but he wasn't great off the ball. Given how Martinelli has struggled against low blocks all season, could Smith-Rowe be a good alternative? I mean, it's a really difficult question to answer because he hasn't just been not an option out wide. He hasn't been an option anywhere for a long time. So I don't quite know. I mean, I think he's capable of playing that way. Maybe it's linked to Zinchenko and where he plays and, and what you need from a wide player, sort of touchline hugging wide player. But, you know, I I wouldn't worry if I saw Smithrow on the team sheet in the wide left position because I think he could do a good job there. But it, it's just really difficult to say because that was his second Premier League start in two years and I think that is that that means you don't have the the range of information that you need to be able to make a definitive judgment as to why he hasn't been playing in a, in a particular position because he hasn't been playing in any position really yeah yeah it is interesting I mean because he played that position with great success for a long time uh, and, and you know he hasn't figured there for for a while, I do wonder if the, the Zinchenko point seems to have some merit to it. I, you know, I think of games where Martinelli was sort of hairing back to bail out Zinchenko. Do I see Smith Rowe doing similarly? I'm not sure. That's so much his game, to be honest with you. Um, I also just think maybe the physical demands are different. Mm -hmm. I feel like 
there's a lot of sprinting required from that wide player. And maybe coaching staff feel a bit conservative about Smith Rowe's capacity to kind of repeat those sprints uh, without yeah, sustaining be. an injury. Um, I wonder if that could, the physical profile could be part of it, whether that's compatible with, you know, his current condition. I don't know, but I, I'm just pleased to see him back included in the group. And it does feel like he's turned a bit of a corner yeah. in the eyes of the manager there. Um, and I think that could be a, a really positive thing for us between now and the end of the season. So fingers crossed. Uh, okay, a couple of very quick ones to finish us off. Uh, Wasted Youth AFC asks, is Paul Scholes wrong? Um, and yes, yes, almost almost inevitably. Yes. Um, the thing that he posts, he uh, has a screenshot of his post on Instagram, uh, Skulls says, a fullback coming into central midfield is an insult to a central midfield player. I think he or she should be told to get the fuck back out there. Good night. Three football emojis. I love to see my left bottom coming into the centre. <laughs> is it the centre or the uh, the upside down underneath? We don't know. <laughs> True. The middle bit. Yes, the middle um, bit. Yeah, Paul Scott's is wrong. Okay. Of course. Uh, I read this one out primarily because I really enjoyed the name. It comes from Lenny and Carl Zola, which is a good one for fans of The Simpsons. He said, uh, Goodly morning, your talk on the 10-year pot about the first name on the back of your shirt brought some triggering memories. When I bought the yellow 1920 away kit, one of the best away kits in recent times, in my opinion, I got the name of an energetic, full of potential midfielder on the back. Genduzi. After watching every video on the internet about removing names from shirts, both me and my wife have not been able to peel off a single letter. <laughs> Do you or any of your listeners have any advice about how to remove the name so that I can wear the shirt in public again? I don't know, you know. I know that if you machine wash football kits enough these days, often the sponsor will just come off, um, which is it doesn't speak to the manufacturing standards particularly highly. Uh but getting the name off, don't know, never tried it. Have you? No, no. I mean, the only thing I can think of is get like a, a Sharpie or a permanent marker and just change the letters to something else. I don't know what you could do, um, really. You could change the G to something like a Q, couldn't you? You could maybe do that. And then the U to an O, so you could have Quinn. I don't know. I don't know. I'd love... Speaking of names on the back of shirts, I'd love to hear. Do you remember when Nicholas Bentner changed his shirt number? I think he went from 26 to 52 mm. to the start of the season. Mm. Um, and I remember Arsenal.com put out a thing. I'm sure Bentner said that he personally would cover at the costs of anyone who had a 26 shirt and wanted to convert it to a 52. I'd love to hear <laughs> if there's anyone out there who actually had that Nicholas Bentner shirt and took up his offer for him to reimburse them or pay for them to get the new squad number. Yeah. I, I suspect there aren't many, but it'd be a hell of a story if there is anyone. Yeah. Um, the I just had a quick look as to why he, he changed and there was a lot of talk about how he changed from 26 to 52 because he was uh, put on 52 grand a week. 
but I don't yeah. think that's it. Um, here's what I found. Bentner said, I switched from 26 to 52 because of a professional fortune teller my mum knows, or a clairvoyant, as she calls herself. She thinks 26 is a shit number for me because 2 plus 6 equals 8, which is my so-called bad number. She found this out somehow. According to the friend, seven is my lucky number, my strength number. Unfortunately, seven is already taken. And 25, two plus five equals seven, was adibayors, which means it's tied up with bad karma. So we settled for 52 in the end. I think this was from his autobiography. So what a big Perfectly load of- Perfectly logical. Yeah. Perfectly logical. <laughs> what a big load of bollocks that was. <laughs> Okay, let's do this final one because it is transfer deadline day tomorrow. Uh, Andrew Allen uh, on on our Discord says, seeing as there's less than 48 hours left of the January transfer window, we clearly don't have any cash to spend on a big-name player. We may need to get creative when it comes to recruits. So which ex-gunner who is still playing would you invite back to London Colney to train with the first team before offering a snap short-term deal to? Think Campbell, Lehman, Flamini, and Henri. Sure, sure. I remember those deals. Uh, I was going to say fondly. I, I remember them. Um, <laughs> who's still playing and available to come and have a little trial with us? I mean, the obvious one that that, that uh, springs to mind for me is Giroud, because at least he's a centre forward. Yes, there's that. Um, I mean, I spoke, didn't I, a few weeks ago about uh, if I could have one player in their prime, I wanted Alexis Sanchez. Well, he's still out there somewhere. 35 years old, into Milan. Mm. Uh, I'd have him back on a loan or a short-term deal. Why not? Bit of a gamble. Yeah. Um, who else? Another aging gunner still out there. What about uh, Takuma Asano? Get him back What's, in. Yeah. That's true. He's really blossomed since we had him. We'll just get Sesk out of retirement, you know, <laughs> for a few months. Like Paul Scholes. Remember that? Paul Scholes was retired and then just turned up in the Man U team one week. Did he? Yeah. I don't remember. That was the whole thing. Right. I've blocked that um, out of my mind. Yeah. Well, like, wait a minute. Where's Santi Cazorla, Andrew? What's he, he doing? Not, did he not go back to Real Oviedo? Did he go back to Spain? I don't know where he is at the moment. Yeah, Real Oviedo. Right. He's there right now. Come on, come Santi. On. You can be tempted. Six months left on his deal. Tear it up. Santi Cazorla remontada. Here we come. Yes. I'm all for it. 39 right. years old. What could go wrong? His Achilles is a made of Play-Doh. Maybe he's got It'll be fine. super Achilleses. Who knows? Uh, yeah. yeah. You'd love to see it, though, wouldn't you? You would genuinely love to see it. Um, all right. We had better leave it there. Um, thank you to you guys uh, for being with us again. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. It's a bit of a weird week this week, of course, um, because we are playing uh, Liverpool on Sunday. Um but it leaves us a bit, because we've done this Arsecast Extra, it leaves us a bit short of Arsecast content for Friday. So we're probably going to leave that. However, we will have an episode of the 30 for you on Patreon, and we will do our preview podcast for you on Patreon on Friday as well. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, take it easy, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.